Hey, thanks for listening to the Junior Ziggler podcast. If you're crazy enough to want more of his content, check out the link in the description of this podcast. That link can get you to his book, his socials, and another podcast. Thanks for hitting play. Here's Junior. Laziness. Let's talk about laziness. I wonder if there's any moms in here who wish they would have brought their jobless, rent-free son in for this one. He can catch up online later on when he wakes up at one (laughs) o'clock. No, no, for real, I think each of us, when we see this word laziness, right away we think of like a few people who could really use this text or this sermon, right? Like, God, I should have brought that coworker. And I know what coworker you're talking about. I know exactly the coworker you're talking about. The one that's always acts overwhelmed, you know, and everybody just kind of picks up their slack. I think everybody's got that in their office. But there's a face or two that come to mind when we look at this word right here. The problem is, is it's never our face. It's so easy, you know, for us to like look at this and think, okay, I'm good on this one. Like I, I was talking with like the band of production before the, before the sermon, and they said, you know, when we looked at like the seven deadly sins as we went into the series, we all thought like, oh, this, like, I'm good at, on this one. This is like the one thing I, I got. Like, I, I think I'm pretty good, right? I'm at the gym by 5.30 in the morning. You know, I, I, I put in more than 50 hours at work. I drive the kids to their games. I make dinner. Like I'm the first one on the block to shovel my driveway. I'm good. And, and I say, hey, that's great. Like I love that. Keep doing that. But you're telling me that there's not one area of your life that lacks any sort of focus? There's not one area of your life that lacks some hard work, that lacks some excellence? Like, you're telling me you're not procrastinating at all in anything? You don't have any unfinished projects? You're not phoning in any responsibilities right now? Like, you're just slaying everything, work, family, friendships, home projects? I mean, if that's you, get up here and preach. I got to listen to you. I think sometimes we fail to realize how much God has designed us for hard work. There's been numerous studies done on the effect of hard work and mental health, and not many of these studies actually get, get out there much airtime because it doesn't sell anything. If anything, these studies really take the focus off Big Pharma as being our savior. But many, many studies conclude that there is an extremely strong tie between physical exertion, hard work, and good mental health. For example, uh, the Amish the community known for valuing hard work and working with their hands and working with the earth and producing all day, the Amish suicide rate is extremely low. That's just in the United States. When you go to third world countries, countries with less access to medicine and media, I know we're taking a, I'm going with a team from the bridge to Honduras tomorrow morning. We're going to go down to Honduras and, and see this. I mean, just people who have these long hours working outside with old tools, a lot of discomfort and health cares and shambles, yet they score far higher on the mental health wellness scale than the United States. And there's many different facets and, and angles to, to these studies, but various researchers have concluded there is this strong tie between busting your butt and feeling the sense of fulfillment, smiling as your head hits the pillow that night. A case in point, can you guess who the happiest people in the world are? You think like, oh, it's got to be Florida, right? Everybody's leaving cold Chicago to go down to Florida. That's where all the happy people are. No, it's actually Norway. It's one of my favorite places in the world. It's little sun, terrible weather, but happy, happy, happy people. They are considered one of the most active people in the world, outdoorsy, hiking, working with their hands. They brave the cold dark all day long, and then they're happy at the end of it. Like there is something about doing hard things, bringing that discomfort that brings this longer term, better mental health. I think we must remember work is not a result of the fall. 
Man was designed originally to bust it. I mean, one could argue that it was actually a moment of lazy distraction from that hard work where man fell into sin. And I bet if you were to think about it, for for us, even the extremely hard workers in here, the sin that we do fall into, I bet if you were to trace that sin back to where it started, it started with a moment of laziness. You weren't where you should have been. You weren't doing what you should have been doing. You had too much energy at the end of the day. Just some idleness that led to that sin. I mean, honestly, this could be life-changing, and I pray that it's far more convicting for all of us than maybe we realize as we're heading into it. Second Thessalonians is where we're going to be. Second Thessalonians. We've got Bibles in the chairs. It's page 990 in those Bibles. This is what we do as a, as a church is we just we go through Scripture together, and so I encourage you to have a Bible in your hand as we all are on literally the same page together. Second Thessalonians is where we're going to be. Let me pray. We'll just jump right into it. Father, we do thank you for your word. And God, we need a reminder right now just of the weight of this moment, that the words that we hold in our hands, whether they're on a screen or in a paper Bible, these words are from you, from our creator. And so God, we ask that you move during this time, that you open our hearts, that you engage our minds, because we need that. May your Holy Spirit illuminate this text to us but may we also have the focus that we need as we look at your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we enter into 2 Thessalonians, we find ourselves in an ancient Greek city called Thessalonica. It's a beautiful port city nestled in on the bay of the Aegean Sea. And the ruins today show of a thriving, more of like a chic port town, home to the elite high class merchants, but also home to port beggars. And somewhere in town meets this this little church. It's a church that reflects the classes around it. It's this fascinating collision of of people during worship. You have wealthy families wrapped in purple cloaks, middle-class freight-loading families, and then you have lower-class temp migrants, all with their hands raised in prayer and worship together. It's this beautiful collision, but it's not without tension. See, something has been brewing in this group. It's an awkwardness that nobody has really wanted to touch, but it's beginning to boil over and it needs addressing. It started when a couple of men quit their jobs and more trickled after. See, the beauty of the early church was the generosity of its members. Acts chapter 2 tells us of of believers in local churches were sharing everything together, this meshing of families and food and possessions and benevolence. It was very curious but captivating to outsiders. But it doesn't take long before people in the church feel this pull to begin to cheat the system to consume from this group more than you produce, to ride the coattails of other people's sweat. It started when a couple of men lost their jobs, but they didn't really seem to feel an urgency to find new work. And some had the audacity to say, you know, hey, why work? Like, Jesus is coming back, so let's just wait this out. This is futile to go to work. Meanwhile, less and less people are pulling their weight with the church budget, and the church is feeling it. It's hitting this tipping point. And so the Holy Spirit, through Paul, writes these words, and they're a bit harsh. Look at them, verse 6. Paul writes, Now we commend you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away, look at that, keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. Now just a little, little uh, tip. When you study Scripture, not always, but sometimes, there will be one word in a verse that when you kind of unpack that word, it really opens up the whole the whole text. There is a key word here in verse 6. Can you guess what word that is? It just opens up the whole text. You can just shout it out. 
Idleness, you got it, idleness. It's this word right here that opens up this whole thought. And so let's just kind of dig into this word for just a second. In the original uh, Greek, the, the word that Paul uses is a taktos, which, which translates as lazy, undisciplined, and sometimes it can mean unsubmissive. So if you think about it, what Paul is saying here is if there is someone in your church who claims that they represent Jesus, who isn't busting it during the week, they're woefully undisciplined, and only ever submissive to their feelings, keep away from them. In fact, if you look at verse 14 later on, he says, have nothing to do with them. Now, don't treat them as an enemy. Don't, be, don't bully them, but make it known they don't represent Jesus. Wow, that seems a little harsh, Paul. You want us to like avoid them? Why? Because why would Jesus, who set the highest standard of, of hard work, want to be represented by an idle, undisciplined waste of space who refuses to fund his own appetite? The way I think of it is, so I know of a guy, he doesn't go to our church. I was talking to a few of his coworkers, and this guy has, has, a, uh, has two reputations at his, his office. First off, he's a Christian. So he's also always talking about like Christian radio that he's listening to. He's talking about his church, and that's fantastic. I'm so glad that you know, he's out there with that. But his second reputation, that he's the most laziest, unsubmissive, terrible attitude sloth in the workplace. So when I went into his office, I had met a few of his coworkers, and he wasn't there. And, and the coworkers had said, oh, Junior, like, we, we've actually heard of you. The lazy guy in the office talks about how he listens to you on the radio. And right away, I was like all embarrassed. I felt like I needed to do a, like, defend myself. I don't want to be associated with that guy. I, I, listen, guys, I'm a hard, I don't have that attitude. I'm a hard worker. You know, I, was, I had to defend myself. And, and, and it's in that moment I kind of thought, like, yeah, how often does God have to do that with us? And that's kind of what he's saying here. He's like, hey, don't, rep, don't say you represent me if that's how you're going to work. Don't say you represent me if that's how you're going to spend your days. That's misrepresenting me, and I don't want to be associated with that kind of a life, with that kind of a work ethic. So we read this, and like the passage seems harsh, but when we think about it through the eyes of God, okay, it kind of makes more sense. He continues on in verse 7. He says, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor, we worked day and night that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. So what Paul is doing is he's pointing back to when Paul and his buddies, his crew, his entourage, they came to Thessalonica and they planted this church. They were getting things going. They were setting an example. And he says, hey, when me and my brothers, when, when we were getting things going, we didn't just come into Thessalonica and like live off you. We didn't just come here and consume. In fact, the city of Thessalonica is better because me and my crew were there for a time. And that kind of makes me pause and just ask myself, and should ask yourself, can you say the same thing? Verses seven through nine. Can you say the same thing? Can you say that your office is better because you're there? Like what you contribute, the work you do, the culture you bring, the attitude. Is your office better? Or are you just in cruise control in your office? You're here to collect a check and get out of here. In fact, in reality, a non-Jesus follower would do just as well, if not better, than what you're doing. Or under your roof, is the culture, the budget, the house repairs, the cleanliness, the kids better because you live under that roof? Or are roommates or other family members picking up all your slack? Do you actually produce more than you consume? Or another way to think of it is the church. If we, heaven forbid, if we had to do your funeral this week, would this place feel a loss? Would there be a void left in the community at your funeral? See, there's two different funerals that we do 
as a church. There's one funeral we'll do, and, and as we're doing the funeral and even after we get together, we, we talk. It's like, shoot, this person's like leaving this, this void. Like they're volunteering, their unselfish attitude, the culture that they contributed to the church. How are we going to fill this void? we we got to find somebody. And then there's other funerals that we do where we grieve the loss. We don't talk ill of them, but there isn't much conversation about the void because there isn't much of a void that they're leaving. So can you say verses seven through nine? Man, everywhere I go, I'm producing more than I'm consuming. He continues on in verse 10. He says, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Don't let him eat if he's not working. So even before this letter, Paul saw the the beautiful early church's system of sharing was starting to enable lazy people to work less. And so what Paul did is he actually preached a sermon on it to the churches. Hey, if they're a capable adult and they're not working, let them feel some hunger. A hungry belly can be good. It's natural motivation to feed yourself. This is how God designed us. I got to tell you, my parents are terrible. And if you've met them, I don't even need to tell you that. <laughs> now, I appreciate what they did, but at the time I hated it. So when I was 14, I got my first job. I made $5.15 an hour stocking shelves at a family, a little family-owned grocery store in my uh, town up in Wisconsin. And from that moment on, from day one, I didn't realize this until I got the job. And I thought, man, I should have not gotten the job. Because from day one, um, my dad sat me down. I said, okay, now you fund your own fun. Now, my parents still like housed me and fed me three meals a day. They, they even paid for my fuel. But for most of my clothing, uh, eating out, video games, cell phone bill, buying a car, if I wanted to take a girl out, that was, I had to fund that. And I didn't really get it because I had buddies who they got like stipends from their parents. And, and I would bring that up to my parents. You know, 14, I'm like, hey, you know, they got stipends. And, and my dad would say, well, we want to raise a man who produces, not a boy who consumes. I think you're the worst. But I, I appreciated what that instilled in me. Because what that instilled in me is like, hey, work is life, right? You got to have a job. And if you're going to quit, you better have another one lined up. And you better learn to enjoy your work. You better learn to take pride in the work that you do. And those paychecks that I did get, I was far more intentional with that money because that was my sweat. Because I remember going to the mall with my friends and thinking like buying a pretzel and just thinking like, dang it, this pretzel is like an hour's worth of work. This is terrible. But too many of my friends, they just, I hate to put it this way, but it's true. They just sucked on their family's teeth. And when it wasn't so cute, they would get cut off, you know, after college. And I would see them get angry. You're talking about like grown men feeling abandoned by daddy because I'm not getting my stipend anymore. Paul's words here are very wise. I'm trying to figure that out with, with my own girls. Like last summer, I tried to teach my girls a little bit of what we're talking about right now. And it kind of sucks because getting a job, and maybe I sound like an old man for saying this, but like it seems like getting a job today at 14 is a lot harder than it was when I was 14. Or maybe it's just where I grew up in Wisconsin. Chicago's different. I don't know, but it's just, it seems to be harder to get a job. So I want to teach my girls this whole idea of like work, work ethic. So we decided, hey, we're going to do a lemonade stand. Like good place to start. And before we did this lemonade stand, I had it all, my wife is at work, it's like I had this lemonade stand all planned, all planned out. The girls were going to work this lemonade stand, and I was going to teach them how hard it was to make a dollar. You know, and after they got their profit, they had this whole plan. Like I was going to take some money, deduct some money, and be like, hey, that was supplies, right? I paid for the lemonade, I paid for the cups, so like that's 10 bucks. And uh, I was going to deduct for tithing. It's like, hey, you got to take this to Bridge Kids and, and go tithe that 10%. And then I was going to teach them about Illinois taxes and just take the rest of it. So I had it, I had it, all, I had it all planned out. 
the problem was is they are smart. So they set up next to my neighbor's garage sale and they went into this room, their room together, and they got each other all dolled up and wore like lemon-colored clothing. They got each other looking adorable. And then they sat by this garage sale. People weren't buying lemonade. They were just throwing 10s and 20s at them. They made out like freaking bandits. And my plan like failed. I counted 85 bucks. 85 bucks from a little lemonade stand. I told them, I was like, I just stocked shelves for two days, eight-hour days for that. Like you three walk out there in your lemon clothing, batting your eyes, doesn't always work. Also, batting your eyes for money does not lead to a good place. So, <laughs> failed. I just don't like it. Just stay cute and marry someone right now. I want to tell you, girls. <laughs> the truth is, though, I, I see this topic with them. When my girls wake up early and they attack the day and they make their beds and they get ready, they're far more happier and they're easier to deal with and they're far more productive during that day. Like the other day, they had off of school, and so they slept in, and they laid around, lazy morning, you know, which is like the best, you know, watching Animal Planet. Halfway through the morning, though, they were just annoying. Like bad moods, idle, frustrated. My wife called me, and so that evening, I sat them down. I was like, you guys were annoying today. This is why we attacked the day early in the morning. So from now on, whether you have school or not, you're going to get up. First thing you're going to do is you're going to make your bed. You're going to get dressed. You're going to go help mom make breakfast or dad make breakfast. And you're going to get the day going. No idling around the rest of the day. It just makes you annoying. And we're the same way. Like we don't outgrow that. When you're not productive, when I'm not productive, we're just annoying. It's true. I went out to lunch with a guy, this is years ago. Went out to lunch with a guy and um, another elder was with. And it was just, we were just hanging out, having fun, having lunch, just catching up. And, and this guy was all excited because he's like, I'm, I'm retiring early. I'm retiring early. I'm so pumped. You know, I'm like in my 50s and I can retire early. He's like, man, that's awesome. And I remember the, the elder had said to him, he said, you better find something to do because you will go crazy if you just relax the rest of your life. In fact, there's even statistics that show that people who just take it really easy after retirement actually die far younger. But those who find something else and really plug into something after retirement, they have a longer, better life. And so I remember the elder telling this guy that, and the guy just kind of shrugged it off, like, hey, I'm fine, I'm just really excited for retirement. Now you fast forward to today, and you just see him, he's an angry individual, just very, very angry. And he's supposed to be enjoying retirement. Why? Because we were designed to work. And when we fail to live according to our design, when we fail to get up early, when we fail to attack the day, when we fail to do hard things, when we fail to sweat, we're just off. We're frustrated. We're annoying. And Paul would agree with that. I love what he says in verse 11. He says, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Like this is so good, so creative. I think it's hilarious. Some of you aren't busy. You're just busy bodies. According to Paul, think about it this way. According to Paul, involvement in workplace drama and gossip is a form of laziness. Paul would say, if you're focused and working hard enough, ain't nobody got time for all the drama everybody else is into. Last couple of years, I, I oversaw our camp intern program. High schoolers, college kids, great people. They're just, we had so much fun with them all summer. They're, they're just a blast. But this truth was on full display up at camp. See, there's two different types of camp workers, and this is true in your office, but there's two different types of camp workers. You have the lazy ones, and then you have the ones who busted it. And I could tell simply by how much, who was who, simply by how much they knew about the drama. So the late, you know, the late workers, the, the slow workers, they just seem to know everything about everybody's problems. 
If I needed to get the scoop of what was going on at camp, you know, I heard something, I need to figure that out, um, need to know who's dating who or, or whatever, all that drama, I knew, oh, I just ask one of the slow workers, they're going to know. If I were to ask the hard workers, the ones on time, they had no idea what was going on. They were just, they were just hardworking and they were just happier. They had, a, they had a much better summer. Life is camp. And Paul just simplifies it here. He's like, either you choose to work hard or you choose drama and laziness. You can't have both. He says, now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Christ Jesus to do their work quietly and earn their own living. What a kind way of saying, shut up and get back to work, guys. That's what he's writing to Thessalonia. It's like, just shut up and get back to work, guys. Essentially, that's what, that's what he's saying. Put your head down. Stay out of the gossip, stay out of the drama, stay out of the politics, get up early, do hard things, get to work, do hard work, bust it, take pride in your work, produce more than you consume. You don't have time for any of the other stuff. It's so beautifully simple. But I think the real question is, is what does this have to do with us? Like, where are you at with this? Because the reality is, nobody looks or talks about this topic and thinks like, yeah, I struggle with laziness. Nobody thinks that. Even the lazy person in your office that has kind of that reputation of being lazy, even they would say, oh, I'm just so overwhelmed. I'm so stressed. I'm just busting it way, 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 way too much. The reality is, is nobody ever really thinks of themselves as lazy. And so I want to take this a step further and talk about a few symptoms from Scripture on laziness. Number one, a symptom of laziness is discomfort is avoided. Your life's just predictable. You never venture out of your zone of comfort. And so anytime there is discomfort, it's this really big deal because you're just not used to it. See, here's the thing is we all, everybody has this threshold of discomfort. And the more you walk past that threshold of discomfort, you know, and whether that's like anything uncomfortable, meeting new people, camping, you know, having hard conversations, running a marathon, whatever, the more you press through that or walk past that threshold, the more capacity you add to yourself to be able to venture out even more. This is why, you ever talk with somebody in, who's like all stressed and you ask them like, hey, what's going on? And they tell you everything that's stressing them and then you're sitting there thinking, you never say it, but you're sitting there thinking like, that's it? That's what's stressing you out? That's it? So like one time I talked to my, my buddy, he doesn't have kids, and he said to me, he's like, Junior, I got this new dog. Bro, it's like having kids, man. It's got to be like having kids. I was on the other end, like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, I'm just like biting my tongue. You know? It is impossible to explain to someone who doesn't have kids what it's like to have kids. Impossible. You can't explain what it's like to be tired for 18 months straight. I had a friend. I went to high school with him. And um, I played basketball. He was a wrestler. And we just um, kind of met that way, um, you know, between practices and whatnot. And uh, he, went to be on, he went to be a Navy SEAL. And we were talking about his training, and he told me, he's like, he's like, Junior, we, have, we had this week uh, of training called Hell Week, and it was just insane. Like, you know, they try to make you sick at times. Um, they, would, uh, they, they would wake you up at all hours of the night. Like, suddenly you're just being woken up by screaming, and if you do something maybe a little bit wrong, like the screaming just gets louder. He's telling me all this, and I thought, moms could be Navy SEALs. Like, forget special ops, just sending in moms in a helicopter, tell them, hey, they woke up your baby and just, it'll be a bloodbath. <laughs> but my friend is all stressed out about his, like, his puppy. Like, oh, big life stressor. Because he hasn't walked past that threshold of discomfort very much. And so what's a breeze to others, having a dog, is very stressful for him. 
And all, yeah, some of, it, some of us, we have different capacity than others. I totally get that, for sure. But lazy people never, never grow their capacity for more. They never walk past that threshold because as soon as they get to that threshold, they feel so overwhelmed. Ah, come on, there's always, a, there's always an excuse not to go into the discomfort. Always an excuse. There's always an ex- excuse not to stretch yourself. How often do you embrace discomfort? Because you were made to embrace discomfort daily. Well, six days a week. But you were made to embrace discomfort. Fact of the matter is, biblically speaking, God doesn't meet us in comfort very much, if at all. Like when God met people, it was in deserts. It was on top of mountains. It was during long travels. You don't meet God on the couch. And sometimes I hear people say, like, ah, I just never really experienced God. Sometimes I just kind of wonder, okay, is it because he doesn't meet you on your couch? Like, go climb a mountain. Go serve in a very difficult place. Go stretch yourself. Go get uncomfortable. You'll meet him. Next symptom is excellence is not a priority. When our, one of our staff values at church and then at, at camp, and we teach our, our camp staff this every, every um, summer when they come up, is, is excellence honors God and inspires people. That's one of our, our staff values. Excellence honors God and it inspires people. It's a biblical truth. When you look at the Old Testament, the, the blueprints for the temple and even the tabernacle, very detailed specifications. This is a massive project that God asked for. Very hard project because God wanted excellence. That excellence meant hard work and hard work honors God. Is that your work? Just excellent. Everything you got. Followers of Jesus never do shoddy work. Excellence is always a priority. Everything our hand finds to do, we do it with all our might. Third symptom is we're motivated more by feeling than by responsibility. And this is really, this is really the big one. I, I would say this is almost like the definition of laziness. The definition of laziness is you are directed by your feelings. Just do what you feel. So alarm goes off and say, I don't feel like working out. I don't feel like making the bed. I don't feel like going that extra mile. Hard work is about directing our feelings instead of the other way around. You're starting off, you think about it. Nobody ever wants to work hard. Nobody wants to, oh yeah, I really want to go work out. Nobody ever starts off like that. The real training is training your feelings. And eventually it just gets easier and easier. When it comes to young staff, this is a big conversation that we'll have with with young staff, especially like millennials, Gen Zers, you know, come in and, and, and I love them very much. Um, but a very common conversation is like, you know, well, Junior, I'm just not passionate about my task list this week. And it's like, okay, well, make yourself, you can make yourself passionate about it. Like, think about Jesus. Jesus didn't feel like taking on skin and going to the cross. Scripture says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus wasn't passionately wanting to be tortured and crucified. What drove Jesus, his joy, was you. He made you his responsibility. Feelings didn't drive Jesus. His responsibility did. You did. And that's our marching orders every day. I don't feel like doing this. Well, it doesn't matter. We follow Jesus. And Jesus didn't do everything he felt like. It's, it's our responsibility that drives us. Feelings in the driver's seat will always crash your life. Actually, here's a crazy thought. Here's a crazy thought. This right here means that workaholics can actually be very lazy because they feel like being at work. They feel like being at work more than being at home, raising kids, working on a marriage. They're neglecting responsibilities because they feel like working. 
It's laziness. Another symptom, struggle to find rest. You struggle to find rest. One of my favorite feelings in the world is just the feeling of exhaustion. I know it sounds weird, but stick with me for a second. The feeling of exhaustion feels fantastic. Right? You, you cross that finish line. I've never done that, but you cross that finish line and you're just like drained. Or my favorite feeling is, is jet lag. I actually love it because like you get into bed after like being up for 30 hours straight, sitting like crunched up on an airplane and you get into bed and you're just like laying in bed like, oh, it's like the best feeling. Or you finish like a long hike and you plop down on the couch. Just the best feeling because rest is so accessible. Rest is right there. You have no other options because your body is just craving rest. Lazy people, though always trying to rest, never actually feel that. Never actually feel good rest. Because unless you've spent yourself, your body struggles to find rest. And this is not a shot at insomniacs. I can, I can be one of you. But I will say, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes my own insomnia is, I didn't wear myself out enough during the day. I just kind of sat on my phone all day, you know, sat in a chair, sat at my desk. And so when I lay down, it's like my body is saying, like, that's it. That's all we got. Because I was designed for more, so you're going to be up a little bit. This is why Scripture teaches the Sabbath. Every week, we are to have this finish line. For example, my finish line was last night started Sabbath for, for my family. And today at one is like really a, a, like the second finish line because this afternoon I will be on my couch with my three daughters in my lap watching a documentary and falling asleep because Sunday afternoon naps just hit different. Love them. But that's my, that's my finish line. And scripture teaches you bust it until the finish line. You wear yourself out fully each day to the point where you get to the Sabbath and your body's just like, you can't do anymore. You are resting. But those who don't actually bust it don't enjoy Sabbath very much because the other six days of their week were pretty close to their Sabbath. Our bodies were designed to ebb and to flow. Life's not a marathon. Life's a, life's a series of sprints. You stress yourself out greatly, quick rest. Stress yourselves greatly, quick rest. It's almost like boxing, right? You go in, you throw a bunch of punches, then you sit exhausted in the corner for a few seconds, then you get right back to it. But those resting times are great feelings because you've drained yourself by stressing it. A sign of laziness is you can't actually achieve great rest. It's just too much energy. You want rest, but you feel this restlessness because your body isn't there. On the seventh day, God rested, but he spent six days calling everything good. And excellent. Some of us struggle to find our rest because we can't say what God said on the six days. Excellent. Busted it. Went for it. That's good. So what's the biblical treatment for all this? I'm glad you asked. Number one, connect your work with your worship. Connect your work with your worship. So what we do in here on the weekends, you know, the prayer and singing, that is absolutely worship. Scripture is filled with commands to sing hymns and spiritual songs. Psalms tells us it's a beautiful psalm to lift our hands in the sanctuary of the Lord. This is a major part of our relationship with God, this corporate gathering and lifting our hands and voices to our creator. But worship doesn't stop here. Every workday, every paperwork filed, every meeting we lead, every nail we hammer, every patient we take care of, every student we teach, every car we fix, every diaper we change, every sandwich we make, every assignment we turn in, that is also our gift to God. Your job, secular or not, doesn't matter. Each task list is this act of worship that you offer to God. 
We call this the theology of work. It's something that the Puritans, uh, the Amish, the Mennonites have really championed, and I think we could learn a lot from them. Like the Amish, we talked about them earlier, but I grew up around, I grew up around the Amish. In fact, my, my sister-in-law, who still lives near where I grew up, she just had her whole house remodeled by an Amish contractor. See, in the area where I grew up, it was known, if you want good furniture, go to the Amish store. If you want detailed, excellent remodeling in your home, hire an Amish contractor. If you want the best baked items, head to the Amish bakery because they don't cut corners. Every detail is excellent. And it all goes back to their theology. They believe every ingredient, every little finishing nail is something that they offer to God. It's their worship. So they walk away from a project with a sense of pride. Ah, look, but also looking up to God going, hey, that was for you. That was for you. May we never forget Every single day is a gift offering to God. Just as the children of Israel would sacrifice their best spotless lambs to God as as an offering, we do that with our days. Every evening we unwind, we should be able to look back at a day filled with excellent work, and that is a pleasing aroma and a sacrifice to God. Have your days been these great offerings to God? Second treatment, do hard things. Do hard things. There's actually a, a book that my parents made me read when I was in high school. I think it was high school. It was, like, it was called Do Hard Things. It's a really good book for, for those of you who have like kids nearing middle school, high school. It's a really good book to, to uh, give them. But Scripture is filled with, with characters doing incredibly hard things. All of it as a testament to the power of God. Right? Moses leading a mass exodus out of Egypt through a sea. David killing a giant warrior, Elijah standing up to Jezebel when her husband Ahab wouldn't, uh, 12 uneducated men birthing the church. We just could go on and on and on and on. It's the mark of our faith. We do hard things because we believe in a big God. It's kind of like, so my youngest, I've been spending the weekend with her because my wife's up at camp serving, um, but my, my youngest, Reese, loves the land blob at camp. It's like this big, this big pillow. She loves it. She's a little gymnast, and so she'll spend her whole day on that pillow. Fearless girl. But she loves it even more when I go with her. Because when daddy goes with her, that means she can do all the stuff that mommy doesn't allow, right? All the scary stuff, all the dangerous stuff. Because if I'm there, like, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll catch her. I'll make sure she doesn't get hurt. So she does all the scary stuff with confidence because she's got dad. This is how our faith is like that of a child. We do hard things. We do scary things. We slay giants. We lead teams. We step up. We step out. We lead. Not because we're something great. I mean, we'll fail on our own every time. We do it because we have dad with us. And not just that, we're convinced that's where we're going to experience dad the most, in the hardship. Truth is, some of us have been living like atheists our whole lives. Living like there isn't this powerful God with us. No, we live in the power of God. I'm not giving you a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, and our lives should align with that. Like when, when God met with Moses and Abraham, they're past 80 years old. Where did he meet with them? On top of mountains. Imagine that. 80-some years old, hobbling up a mountain. I hate climbing three flights of stairs. That's where God wants to meet you. Do hard things, things you, can't think you don't think you can do on your own. And then look for him in the discomfort of that. Because that's where he's at. That's where he's called you to. And if you rarely, if ever, engage that discomfort, it's disobedience. It's idleness. Some of us don't have a fresh relationship with God because our our God is really 
predictability. That's the God we serve. Spend our lives just sacrificing to the God of predictability. I just want to live a predictable life. And we fail to realize that God moves in the discomfort. Some of us are just one uncomfortable step away from a relationship with God that we want. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying like, hey, go move to a remote third world village. As long as God's calling you there. You don't need to do that. Like, I think too often uh, Christians, especially new Christians, can become impetuous. Like, okay, I'm going to embrace the discomfort. I'm moving to experience God. I'm going to live in the middle of Africa. I'm going to quit my life here. It's like, okay, calm down, Rambo. This, isn't, this is exactly what, what Paul is, is speaking against in 2 Thessalonians. There's steps of discomfort all around you. Take those steps. No, they're just not as, as sexy as like quitting and moving. I want to go do this big thing. No, they're all around you. God is calling you to step up somewhere. God is calling you to lead more somewhere. God is calling you to give greater, to mentor, to serve. There are things that you spend your week avoiding. A conversation, a sign-up, a, a task item, a job, because it's awkward, it's scary, it's hard, it's, it's going to require sweat, it's going to require courage. It's all around you. And that's where God wants to meet you. Don't avoid him. He's right there. You just got to step out past that threshold a little bit more. See, the truth is, some of us are like the Thessalonians in this text, who Paul's writing to. Yeah, okay, yeah, we got jobs. But it's almost like we're just kind of sitting back, waiting things out, running out the clock, just trying to get to retirement here, just trying to increase my comfort here, dreaming of vacations, dreaming of living somewhere more comfortable. Is that really the life you want to tell of one day? You were made to live in the power of God. You don't need that power if you're always comfortable. That power is only felt, it's only experienced when we step out, when we break a sweat, when we live in the thick of it. And it's in that discomfort, it's in those aches, it's in that, that stress that we see this big God, not just see this big God, but, but experience this great God who carries us through. The author writes great stories. Stories reminisce for eternity. But stories worth telling never unfold in idleness. Stories worth telling never finish with just, ah, just running out the clock here. And so as Christians, we play through the buzzer every single day and we push ourselves. We embrace discomfort, bring on the stress. It only drives us closer and closer to the one we really depend on. It only drives us closer and closer to our creator. And a life lived like that weekly, that is a story worth living. Thanks again for listening. Again, for more content, just scroll down to the podcast description and follow the link. Before we call it, would you be kind enough to share this podcast? It goes a long way. Blessings on you today. See you next time.